Yes, you can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we are going to be in the book of Lamentations. Woo! Lamentations. I don't know if any of you guys are aware of what that word means, uh, but this is not going to be a fun one. (laughs) All right, glad you're here. If you have a Bible, Lamentations is in the Old Testament. It's a somewhat smaller book, so you may need a table of contents visit to find that page number. If you have a digital Bible, you can, of course, tap there. We would invite you to look at that on like a tablet or phone. Uh, But if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, don't panic. We'll put those words on the screen so you can follow along with what we're talking about. Our confidence comes from the fact that we believe the the Bible to be God's Word. And so when we preach or talk, we're not talking about sort of our collective wisdom. We're talking about what we see in Scripture. So we would love for you to follow along with us in the Bible. Um, If you don't have a copy of the Bible in a modern kind of readable translation, we would love to give you one uh, on your way out. So we're talking about lamentations. We're talking about lamentations because the course of Scripture gives us several good examples. We talk about good guides. That's the series we're going through right now. These are people in the Bible that God does big things with or God encounters in such a way that it gets recorded for us and becomes an example to us. Often it can be a negative example, things not to do or things that God is good in despite the action or behavior or personality or whatever of this person. But the guy today uh, that we're going to talk about talks about um, some really hard stuff. So we want to talk about hard stuff. We want to talk about what the Scripture talks about. And I say want to, um, and that's probably not the best word. That's more like my mother saying, hey, you want to go clean the house? Like, No, if you're asking, like if, if that was a literal want to, but we all know we're supposed to go Yes, ma'am, we do want to go (laughs) because it wasn't really a want to. That's kind of how this is. There's a command in Scripture to be still. Dramatic pause. Be still and know that I am God. Now, that's a command that a lot of us have difficulty trying to follow. Because if you're actually still for a moment, what comes up? All the stuff that you're trying to not feel, and so you're not very very still. Like, I don't know what your life is like. I try to keep my life pumped up. Lots of activity or, like, activity that's like leisure. You know, I don't want to say lots of activity and make you think that I'm just like this crazy person who works all the time constantly. I want to. Hopefully I'll get better at that and be faithful in the way that I work. But even when I'm not, I'm trying to, like, watch more videos or, or put on more entertainment or find something else interesting to listen to or read or whatever. Why? Well, part of that is because as soon as you stop for a second, all this other stuff sort of catches up to you. We've been talking about different kinds of things that are in people's life over the last couple of weeks. We've talked about shame and guilt. We've talked about despair. But there's another kind of negative emotion that we might try to avoid, and that's uh, grief. It's, it's something that I think a lot of people have experienced in really specific ways. When you read, when you research grief, it's a little bit confounding because everybody's experience of grief is necessarily extremely personal. But whatever your experience with grief is like, it's also very painful. It's not something you enjoy thinking about. It's something that you maybe have to think about or you find yourself feeling. But, I mean, how often do we pursue it? I I don't think ever, really. 
And yet, I, I want to talk about it because it is there. And it's not really healthy to just try and ignore it. I mean, if you do that, at some point, it's going to rear its ugly head, whether you like it or not. So, so wouldn't it be better? Maybe another question is, is Christianity able to help with your grief? Now, historically, uh, people go to religion in times of crisis. That's a thing people often do. But, but culturally, we have this idea that, that suffering or evil or wickedness or the brokenness of the world is an argument against the possibility of God. Certainly against the possibility of a good God or a powerful God. And so maybe as a Christian, there's a part of you that doesn't want to think about your grief because you just think that God's not really well equipped to handle that. Well, what I want to do today is, is follow a good guide. I want to follow somebody in Scripture who experienced an incredible amount of suffering. And you're thinking we're going Job, but it's Lamentations. We're actually going with this guy named Jeremiah. And, and Jeremiah was somebody who watched as the most precious things, the most precious places, and the most precious people in all of his world were destroyed. He's somebody whose, whose ministry, it seems, was to like watch and respond in grief to some of the most terrible things that happened throughout the course of the Old Testament. This guy, Jeremiah, he, he saw the fall of all the stuff that we've talked about, from Abraham and God's promises to build a people and put them in a promised place. All the stuff we talked about with Moses, of God saying he's going to build a spot where sinful humanity can stand before a holy God by way of a priest and a sacrifice and be in relationship with him. He watched the fall even of what we talked about with Moses in the exodus of the people of Israel leaving Egypt and coming into the promised land. See, this guy was born, Jeremiah was born about 645 B.C. in a small town that was near but not in Jerusalem. He was somebody that was in line to be one of the, the priests. They had this priest class in the Old Testament, and that priest class was given by birth, children of Levi. But God called him instead of becoming a priest to become a prophet, one of these people who go and speak God's words to his people. And as a young man, he was called to be a prophet about 627 B.C., and he served as a prophet for about 40 years. And they were 40 terrible years. In the course of that 40 years, he watched as God allowed the wickedness of the southern king of Judah in Jerusalem, in that, that kind of the capital representative of that area, land on the people. He watched as God's judgment was poured out on the people of Israel who had disobeyed him so thoroughly for so long that eventually he took his name, he took his, his presence back from them. So he watched. You, you know, we talk about this kingdom that God builds, this group of people, this kingdom of Israel. Well, then through their disobedience, right after Solomon, they break up and you have a northern kingdom, which we call Israel throughout the Old Testament. And then you have a southern kingdom, which we call Judah. And Israel had bad king after bad king after bad king, meaning kings that led the people into idolatry. So much so, that God eventually had this massive kingdom of Assyria come down and just swallow up Israel. They don't exist anymore. Then you have Judah. And the southern kingdom of Judah had some really, really bad kings. But every now and again, they had some pretty good ones. You had your Hezekiahs and you had your Josiahs. 
But even though there were some good kings, the people of Israel continued in the rebellion so much so that in Jeremiah's lifetime, in his ministry, God allowed Babylon, this great kingdom out to the east, to come and swallow up Judah and make it no longer a place. Swallow up the temple and take it apart rock by rock. Swallow up that people. And Jeremiah watched as it took place. He watched as Jerusalem was crushed in Lamentations chapter 2. So the book of Lamentations, 10-ish chapters, I'm not exactly sure, shorter than the actual prophecy, but it's a, a sort of poetic retelling of his experience of all these things as they happen. And so the book of Lamentations, it's Jeremiah's experience, and he's talking about in chapter 2, verse 2, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He says, The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He's brought down to the ground and dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He watched not only as the kingdom, but as the temple was destroyed. Look at verse 7. The Lord has scorned his altar, the place where sacrifices were made. He's disowned his sanctuary, this holy spot that he had cut out as the holy of holies. He's delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. So, so what takes place often around this kind of area, this Temple Mound area, was they would have festivals. They had these like prescribed celebrations that would take place through the year. And he's saying it had the same sort of quality that there was a lot of people and that it was very loud. And the focus was there on that spot. But instead of it being a celebration, instead of there being feasting, there were screams. There was destruction. There was ruin. In that way, he didn't just watch as this sort of important place was broken. Understand the symbolism of what he experienced. He watched as the place where God met with man was eliminated. So he didn't just weep over the foundations of Solomon's temple being deconstructed. He weeps because he's watching the light of the world get put out. If you've hung with us, we've talked about how a temple was supposed to be this sort of representation of the universe, and the thing in the temple was supposed to represent the God of the universe. He's watching as literally, in his mind, the universe is destroyed. And I mean, he reacts. It says in verse 9, her gates have sunk into the ground. He's ruined and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. He's saying that everything has taken place in the kingdom of God from, you know, we could really say Abraham, but definitely Moses until now he's watching be destroyed in one generation. Now, I, I know that you may not sort of emotionally resonate with everything we're talking about happening to Jeremiah. You know, our nation has experienced some attacks and attacks on things that were symbols of greater things for us. It wasn't just math where you say this many people died or this much property was damaged. There was a symbol that went further, that struck harder. So that maybe gives you a little bit of an entree into Jeremiah's experience, but you don't really have to understand exactly what Jeremiah went through for you to understand that what he's experiencing is an extreme case of, of weeping, of lament, 
what he's experiencing is an extreme case of suffering and brokenness. And the way that we're going to understand that is, is not to maybe compare and contrast, because like I said, grief is extremely particular. It's personal. So you can't say, well, he lost a city, but I lost a dad. You know, you can't put those things next to each other. But I do hope that whatever your suffering is, you can understand that the extremity of Jake, uh, Jeremiah's situation at least says, well, then whatever medicine he could take, I could take too. Whatever process he went through would be maybe one that would also be helpful or effective for me. That he can be a guide on how we suffer. And what does he do? What does he, how does he respond to all this stuff that he experiences? Well, the first thing he does is he does lament. He reacts emotionally to the awfulness that he's seeing with negative emotions and expression of that negative emotion. It says in verse 11... My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. He's seeing something that's so awful, he's responding to it. He's not ignoring it. He's not pretending it doesn't exist. He's responding to it. And that's appropriate. Be still and know that I am God is not just a be still and be comforted by the presence of God. If you be still and know that he is God and you've got this in your past, then being still is maybe going to involve this kind of stomach-churning, bile-producing weeping. That's a right response. You know, I'm trying to be a good pastor and do my research. I, I read through this book called Grief Demystified by a British author and scholar named Caroline Lloyd. And she opens the book with a poem that I think is meant to be, you know, a metaphorical presentation of the message of the book. And in the poem, a woman goes to work. And every day she goes to work a different way that she doesn't have to so that she can confront this pigeon that has died. And she wants to, wants to see this pigeon as she goes to work so that in confronting the reality of death, as sort of symbolized by this pigeon, she can come to a place of acceptance. Now, again, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of wisdom that's going on. That word acceptance makes sense in some ways. But also, if you're grieving, no, it doesn't. Death doesn't have something about it that makes you say, this is right, or this is natural, or this should happen. In my neighborhood, we got a ton of crows. I don't know what you know about crows, but crows have personality. They don't just skitter away. Crows look you in the face, and they make that, ah, like right at you. Crows in my neighborhood are like teenagers. Like, they don't really mind that you know that they're there. They're just going to kind of do what they want to do, and they kind of hope that you mess with them. I watched a crow stay in the middle of the street and continue to clean its feathers and make a Tesla drive around it. You think, well, the Tesla's quiet. Maybe the thing didn't know it was there. It's electric. It's not motor. No, I think the crow knew it was there and decided, like, one of us is going to move, and it's not me. And he watched. He won. He watched as the Tesla went around the crow. Just cool. Helping my neighbor this week, in his backyard, a crow had, had died. So I think I'm going to be a nice guy and get rid of this thing for him. And it's, I'm not 
very tough. So, of course, I get like the thickest glove I have and put it in these giant sort of whatever millimeter trash bags we can find and run those up to my shoulder so that I can touch the thing as little as possible. But even through all of my hazmatting, you can still feel it. The hard and the soft of the decaying feathers and bones. Try and like wrap it as well as you can and zip tie that thing and throw it away. Because it's not something to be accepted in the same way you might accept a, a tree or ex- same way you might accept a, a view or a new relationship. It's something to be rejected. It's something that does not fit. It is not, not natural. And so Jeremiah laments. He, he wishes it weren't. It's not something lovely. It's something awful. And so he weeps, and, and so he leads us in that way. When you see something like this, not just a crow, but I'm, I'm saying a, a real death, a real thing in your world that was and is not, it is right to weep. But he doesn't just weep, he also trusts in the Lord. It says that Jeremiah, in seeing all this destruction, he, he says something contrary to your expectation by, by then actually trusting in the Lord. He does feel the pain of what's happening, and question it. It it affects his faith. It says in chapter 3, verse 16, God has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. My hope, uh, so has my hope from the Lord. A prophet of God laying down revelation for us to read is saying that this suffering was so great that his reaction to it has meant his endurance is gone and his hope from the Lord is gone. He absolutely feels it, and yet he goes even further. If you go to 21, verse 21 in that same chapter, chapter 3, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Hope's gone, but he remembers something, and this allows him, therefore, to have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Skip down to verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He's saying that he does then remember what he believes to be true about God. Yes, there is total destruction for 40 years, and yet he knows that God's love never ceases. That God's heart remains compassionate and committed to his people. He Believes that, and, and yet in believing that, if we're going to then construct our map, our, our what to do in grief, we still have a question. Because he's saying, I lament, I know that the world really is awfully broken. And he's saying, I trust, I believe that God really is compassionate and loving, that he really is holy and good. Okay, but how do those things go together? Right? Like, like maybe you thought to yourself, well, yeah, okay, here's your Christian answer. You know, I, I see the severity of the brokenness of the world, but you're just going to say, nope, God's good. Everything's okay because God's loving. He's compassionate. So, you know, 
Stop asking all those questions. And maybe if you have the, the good grace to be friends with somebody who, who really can articulate sort of like an atheistic position on this stuff, they may ask some hard questions here and say, well, okay, you say you have a good God, but we have a broken world. You say you have a strong God, but we have injustice happening all the time. How can your good God allow this world to be the world that we live in? He's either not good or not strong because a good God who could stop it would stop it. It's a pretty good question. I think most of, most of us resonate with that question. And the way that Jeremiah deals with it is a, a way that it's extremely helpful and it's right, but it can be hard to swallow. The way that Jeremiah connects the reality of the destruction around him and the reality of the goodness of God, the way that he connects those two things is that he trusts, and I'm going to use this word, in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty, meaning his absolute kingness, his ability to declare and to plan and to make what he wants to happen, happen. Trusting in his Sovereignty allows Jeremiah to go from weeping prophet to trusting prophet. What do we mean by that? Well, well, his sovereignty. There, there's another guy in the Old Testament who has a similar experience. His name is Job. We did a series on Job a little while back. It's a long book, 40-something chapters. And in that book, we have a guy who loses everything. God allows this guy, Job, to lose his incredible wealth and his incredible number of children. Dead. Then God allows him to lose his health. He experiences these painful sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And his friends come, and the whole of the book, most all of the book, is a discussion between him and his friends about whether or not what he's suffering is his fault or there's something else, there's something about God that's just remaining unexplained. Because the friends are like, dude, we can do math. God exists. And you're suffering, so you must have done something awful. So much worse than the bad things that we've done that your life looks like that and our lives look like this. But Job keeps arguing with that. He doesn't say he's perfect, but he says, there's nothing about my life that is so much worse than yours that I'm experiencing this. There must be another answer. And what we get at the very end of the book is God's response to Job. God finally then interacts with Job. Job, who has experienced the brokenness of the world like Jeremiah, now gets an experience with God where he's going to somehow make sense of the fact that he believes God to be good. He's going to somehow put those two things together. And God meets him to speak with him at the end of Job, in Job 38. God speaks with Job, and he doesn't speak with him how you would expect. Like, you expect Job has gotten hit as hard as you can get hit. So if you're going to go meet with him, you're going to come and comfort, right? Like, isn't that what you would hope? And God's wise. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus meets a family who's lost a brother. And there's two different people that come to him, one lady named Martha and one lady named Mary. And Jesus interacts with both of them differently because each of them are different people. One, he speaks truth to because that's what she needs. And one, he just weeps with because that's what she needs. So God's wise. He knows how to deal with people. And what does he say to Job? What he says to Job is not peace and comfort. What he says to Job is, I am God. He speaks sovereignty to Job. 
He does that in the means. When he meets with Job, he doesn't speak to him with just words. or He doesn't have a bush kind of utter whispers or something. He speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. He appears in a tornado, and he speaks to Job in these rhetorical questions that challenge Job for challenging God. He says in verse 2 of Job 38, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched line upon it? Okay, you, you, you go into a hospital room, don't come in with sarcasm. <laughs> God's prerogative, not yours, okay? But when God speaks to Job, he comes with rhetorical questions that slap him around and say, where were you when I created? Oh, that's right, you're a creature, not the creator. He's not just pulling rank. He's helping Job see the massive distinction between him and Job. Why? Because if Job is going to be able to trust that God does have a plan, he's got to trust that God is big enough to have a plan in this kind of suffering. God continues, and it's, it's a, maybe a three-chapter harangue of God speaking to Job. And he describes not just creation, but he describes the sort of wildness of creation. He talks about these specific animals that are in the world and how they're, they're wild in their strength. They're wild in their impressiveness. But he talks about how for God, they're tame. He then kind of comes to this pinnacle point where he describes these two creatures whose strength is representative of the chaos in the world, whose destructive power is representative of the way that everything is breaking all around us all the time. Just like the tornado that God is speaking to Job out of, he's describing these Godzilla-like creatures. Did you ever see Rampage with Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Of course, I mean, we all did. It's our favorite movie. It's a movie where, you don't really know, that was a joke. It's a movie. It's just a blockbuster popcorn summer movie, and it's got a lot of violence. Maybe it has bad stuff in it. Please don't see it. I don't know. But in the movie, it's based on a video game. You know, DNA, it doesn't, the story does not matter. There, there's bad animals that become giant monster versions of themselves. One of them is a giant crocodile, one of them is a giant wolf, and one of them is a giant gorilla. And they're just unstoppable, invincible forces of chaos. They get into Chicago, and they just unmake it. They bite the buildings, and the buildings fall, the American military shooting tanks at them and stuff, and they just laugh, and they don't even feel it. They're impossible forces of chaos that cannot be tamed by humanity. Okay, Leviathan. That, that's kind of what God's describing in Job. Probably wasn't thinking about Rampage when he said it, but I think it's helpful. Then, in talking about those unbelievably massive animals, God says, while you can't contain them, I can. In verse 3 of Job 41, he says, Will Leviathan, which is the name of one of those creatures, will Leviathan make pleas to you? Will he, will he speak soft words to you? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with Leviathan as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? What's he saying? The same thing he said in, in all of these three chapters. He's saying the chaos of the world is so much smaller than the greatness that I am. That you can trust me, Job. 
man, that sounds hard, but he's giving Job a way to trust that God is not only good, he's big, he's sovereign to the degree that though he may not explain your suffering, he can make it right. There's a guy named C.S. Lewis that we like a lot, who's a Christian apologist and, and scholar from England in the last century. And he wrote a book after his wife died called A Grief Observed. And it's a small book, just a couple of chapters, but he's just describing his emotional experience for a period of time. It was kind of an exercise of, of catharsis for him, but then they, you know, he ended up publishing it. Towards the end of the book, though, he says, When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer. But a, a rather special sort of no answer. It's not a locked door. It's more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate, gaze. As though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question like, Peace, child, you don't understand. Can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? Quite easily, I should think. I mean, all nonsense questions are unanswerable. How many hours are there in a mile? Is square, uh, I'm sorry, is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions we ask, half our great theological and metaphysical problems are like that. He runs into God and he finds a compassionate God, but he also finds a God that is so supreme, so sovereign, that while he doesn't receive an explanation, he can trust. And if you say that's begging the question, I want to go to one final spot to help you see how God can turn your pain into something different. While he does not explain your pain, he does give us the example of the cross. So in the New Testament, Jesus is God-made man. He lives a perfect life. He doesn't sin in any way. Job's friends would have nothing to accuse him of. And yet, famously, at about age 33 or so, he is killed. He's hung on a Roman cross to be crucified. And while he went through a physical execution, he went through a spiritual experience that is described by himself and the other gospel writers and the whole of Bible as not just physical pain, but a spiritual, an a, a emotional, a, um, a, at a totally different plane, a punishment, a reception of the punishment of God for the sin of all who would call on his name. So I'm a Christian. I've put my faith and trust in Jesus. That means I don't think I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. It means that I think that I have a right relationship with God because on that day, Jesus actually drunk the wrath of God for my sin. God died for me. That makes no sense. That is awful for him. He has to drink the fullness of the wrath of God, submit himself to the shame of death, and then all he gets is me? That is a terrible deal for him. But he did it. Because of his great love, he did it. <laughs> because of his great love, he did that so that you can also receive that love, receive that forgiveness, be adopted, be reconciled to this holy God. That doesn't explain death in your past. That doesn't explain grief and suffering in your present. But it lets you say that if he can make that kind of awfulness into something beautiful, 
Maybe he can turn my ashes to beauty. Maybe he can turn my grief into something that becomes joyful. I mean, you can walk through Jeremiah's experience. He, he saw the temple broken. Well, Jesus makes a new temple in himself with a new priest that never has to be replaced and a new sacrifice that is once for all. Jeremiah saw the, the place of God, the nation of God, filled with death instead of life. But Jesus starts a new country with the new people who take that kingdom outside of Mesopotamia to the whole of the world, where Christians are now in the heart of China and in the burned-out desert of America. It's now a nation without borders and a nation whose numbers can't be counted. Jeremiah saw the full destruction of God's people, and Jesus promised a full restoration of a new kingdom through a new creation that begins in his resurrection. It's hard to find this stuff out, but, but if you can see him as he is, all these other things just get small. Lewis, in that book, he quotes this lady named Julian of Norwich, who is a, um, just sort of a Middle Ages Christian personality, but she had a vision of Jesus, and in this vision she heard, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Changed everything. This guy Thomas Aquinas, this super genius guy, super heady, brilliant uh, scholar and theologian from the Middle Ages. He's writing all these books. He wrote one, and it's called the Summa Theologia. Ooh, right? Good luck with it. And at the end of his life, he has this vision of Christ. And after having seen that vision, he says, all of my writings are as straw. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's all a house of cards. When he saw something that was so much greater, the Apostle Paul, as he's living his life and preaching his gospel and giving us the New Testament, has an experience where he sees a glory that is so high that God actually gives him a demon, a messenger of Satan, so that he can feel some sort of a thorn in the flesh that would help to balance him out until he gets to that place one day. There is a glory that's there. It's hinted at through the cross. It's hinted at through the Old Testament. It's hinted at through your life and what it is that you know about the God that you've met. It's hinted, but it's there. And one day you're going to see it in its fullness. When we talk about grief and we talk about suffering, there's not a, a switch that you can flip that all of a sudden makes it all better. But over time, as you come to know this Jesus of this kind of love and this kind of sovereignty, I pray that you'll start to experience not just relief, because that may not really be what you most need, but you'll experience a connection to the Lord who one day really will make all things well and all manner of things well. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we need you. And some of us need you in a really specific way because we're feeling a pain that is really awful and never seems to go away. The experience of grief, Lord, is some of the worst suffering that humanity endures. And some of the people in here are experiencing grief at a deep level. I pray that for those that already know you, you would meet them with the reality of who you are in the reality of their suffering, that they would lament, that they would trust you, and that they could bridge that gap by seeing something of your sovereignty. Lord, that they would bridge that gap with the wood of the cross, that Jesus' love, death, 
and resurrection would be such powerful pictures that they would trust that, that you're holding their hand, even if they don't understand why. Lord, I pray that as you pour out that kind of grace on your people, you would give comfort, and that comfort would be comfort that we can comfort others with as well. Lord, for those in this room who don't yet know you or haven't yet believed, I, I pray that something of the beauty of these answers would at least be compelling. Lord, it's such a big subject. 30 minutes, or however long I've gone, is, is not enough. But if you've pricked somebody's curiosity, Lord, if you've pricked somebody's heart, I pray that you would give them the grace to, to speak to us and, and let us maybe continue in a conversation about these hard but beautiful things. Lord, please glorify your name in the way that you lead us through um, this valley of the shadow of death. In your holy name we pray, amen.